The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The world does not lack for management ideas. Thousands of researchers, practitioners, and other experts produce tens of thousands of articles, books, papers, posts, and podcasts each year. But only a scant few promise to truly move the needle on practice, and fewer still dare to reach into the future of what management will become. It is this rare breed of idea, meaningful to practice, grounded in evidence, and built for the future that we seek to present, says Robert Holland, the editor-in-chief of MIT Sloan Management Review. Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration, is a new book that endeavors to show that the needle can and will move through the addition of artificial intelligence to the complex work of today's world. Thomas H. Davenport, one of the co-authors of the book, says, there is no shortage of commentary on what artificial intelligence will do to human jobs. It's easy to find a multiplicity of predictions, prescriptions, or denunciations. It's not so easy, however, to find descriptions of how people work day-to-day -day with smart machines. I invited Thomas H. Davenport to join me for a conversation that matters about our emerging and ever-expanding relationship with a technology that scares a wide range of people, including Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Thomas, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be here. Call me Tom, please. Uh, shall do. Why do you think it is that people are so afraid of AI when in your book you demonstrate, no, it's a remarkable complement to uh, making us more efficient, more effective, and better at what we do? Well, the, the whole idea of AI replacing humans at work gets a lot of attention. Um, and certainly there, you know, there have been these studies that say there was an Oxford study a number of years ago that said 47% of US jobs could be um, automated within 10 years. Um, that got a huge number of headlines. It's not um, even close to being accurate, maybe, you know, 1% at most, I would say, probably not even that. Um, and then there's the, the fear of sort of um, AI and robots sort of killing us all, which has been nurtured by various you know, movies over the, over the decades, but um, not much evidence of any damage thus far. A little bit on the robots and manufacturing side um, in terms of job loss, but not really anyplace else. Well, my sense is that people fear that we're going to have humanoid artificial intelligence. And I don't know that we can even define what it means to be human. So how on earth can we create humanoid artificial intelligence? Is artificial intelligence really not the ability of a machine that is assigned a task to learn from what it's doing and enhance its own ability? But it can't extend beyond those abilities. Certainly not yet. And by the way, we have great difficulties defining the word intelligence as well. So it, it will be difficult to, to know when we have been surpassed if, if we ever are. But um, yes, you know, I think there, we're making great strides in the ability of, of AI and robots, um, for that matter, to 
um, get better at the tasks that they do, but um, they don't decide what tasks to perform. And um, in general, they don't decide how to go about it. That's all sort of programmed in advance. So this fear of technology is nothing new. I know that in the book that you do uh, refer to Queen Elizabeth I, who turned down William Lee's patent application for an automated knitting machine for fear that it would throw knitters out of work. You know, and that was in the late 1500s. Uh, our, our sense that the automation or the ability to enhance human skills uh, is going to be detrimental. There's very little evidence that that's the case, though. No, there isn't much evidence. And of course, you know, um, knitters have been, human knitters have been replaced by machines and textiles of various types and other types of jobs, but new jobs tend to come along um, at a pretty good rate. I mean, I think you could look at much of Dickens' writing and say there, there can be some pretty severe dislocations um, while we're waiting for the new jobs to come along sometimes. But in general, they do come along. Now, um, I try not to be complacent about it. Larry Summers, former president of Harvard and a very well-known economist, said, you know, we don't really know. This time could be different. But in general, um, AI and other machinery have not had a long-term impact on human jobs. Isn't the human uh, knowledge and human power required or intellectual power required to create AI and other forms of technology actually create more jobs than they displace? Is there not a, a body of, of work that proves that? Um, I don't think that it's been proven. It has certainly been suggested. I mean, the World Economic Forum um, did a study, although it's largely speculative, speculative, saying that, uh, I don't know, something like 75 million jobs would be lost because of AI. And then I think the number was 115 million jobs would be gained because of it. But all of these are speculations. We don't um, really have a good way to even measure how jobs are lost um, for any particular technology. And as I say, in manufacturing, there have been some fairly careful studies showing that every new robot displaces about three jobs in the United States, but that doesn't necessarily hold in other countries and it doesn't reflect the creation of, of new jobs. You co-authored another book called Only Humans Need Apply. <laughs> what was the thesis around that? Uh, well, that one, um, which I co-authored in 2016 was, it really started out um, with a different angle. And we might have called it initially, um, no humans need apply because I, um, at the beginning of the research was very worried about the impact on jobs. But as we looked more deeply, we found out that augmentation of human labor was a lot more likely future than large scale automation. And we found out that someone else had taken the title of no humans need apply. So that helped dissuade us. But it was about the, um, the ways and we identified five different ways that humans can avoid the impact of smart machines on their um, labor and their work. And um, so throughout that book, we detailed the five approaches and 
um, a number of examples of, of each one. I got to get to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You use the word augmentation. Is that really the power uh, in artificial intelligence in the workplace, that it's augmenting, not replacing? I think it is. And, you know, in some cases, I, I view the augmentation as bidirectional. In some cases, we augment the machine. In some cases, um, it augments us. And in different jobs, there are sort of different levels of augmentation. Uh, um, you may have seen a number of hospitals now have um, um, surgical robots, but there isn't much intelligence in them at all. And the, and the human surgeon is doing about 80% of the, of the heavy cognitive lifting. They're deciding what to do and where to cut and, and so on. Um, on the other hand, if you're applying for a credit card in a bank, um, a human may not see your application at all. And the, the AI is going to do the vast amount of the work. So it, I think there's a spectrum there, but in general, it's humans and machines, you know, collaborating effectively to, to get whatever job done they're trying to accomplish. I like the line that you use, humans in the loop. Uh, and in your case studies, you, you demonstrate that sometimes the humans will maybe take a back seat to AI, but at other times, uh, AI cannot step up to, to the line and function on its own. It requires human in intervention. Were you surprised to see that? Because there seems to be this sense that, well, no, once you start moving down the AI path, that that, that will replace the human uh, in that, that work function. Well, I wasn't too surprised because I'd you know, written this previous book um, uh, glorifying the idea of augmentation. And I've looked quite carefully, for example, at the idea of autonomous, fully autonomous vehicles. And we seem to be struggling. In fact, we've been struggling for 30 or 40 years with that um, uh, ideal of you know, not needing any human driver at all. We get closer and closer to it, but there are always some circumstances that seem to require a human be involved in one way or another. I actually heard a very interesting analysis of why we're not moving to fully automated vehicles. And there were two reasons that were cited. Number one, a lot of people really like driving and they don't want to hand that off to some other machine. And the second component is that uh, insurance companies aren't so sure that they're willing to uh, place you know, the risk of liability on a machine. And so this goes to show, yeah, we have all these things that are enhancing our ability to be safer drivers uh, because AI is already at work for us, but we don't want to completely give over control. Well, I think that's true. I mean, my view is that um, the vehicle, autonomous vehicles are not quite ready for us to hand over control, even if we were willing to. But there, um, there have been people who made the argument that there are certain spheres of human activity where we humans would really prefer, you know, being served or entertained or uh, driven around by other humans 
than by machines and that that would limit the adoption of um, highly capable AI, even if it were you know, ready to take over in that particular sphere. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You know, let me come back to the topic about uh, displacing jobs. And one of the outcomes that we've seen from COVID-19 is that across so many sectors within the economy, we keep hearing about a labor shortage. And so is it not even more important for us to look for those um, you know, AI solutions that can help to support the workforce and the economy. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, in general, we're spending a lot on the, these technologies. And if we aren't getting some benefits in terms of increased productivity, it's a bad investment. So I do think that we need to find some ways to reduce the amount of human labor in, in some cases. Um, uh, some, I wrote a little piece recently, a, a magazine article in Forbes um, about Bank of Montreal actually using, quote, digital workers. Um, th these were more sort of software robots called robotic process automation than, than um, real AI. But um, in the early days of AI vendors rarely said that they could replace human labor. But now they're sort of coming out of the closet a little bit and saying, oh, no, we have digital workers that can replace human workers. I'm not sure that's entirely true yet, but um, there is, I think, in this period of uh, great labor shortages. I was talking this morning with um, someone from Amsterdam. They don't have enough people to work in the airport, so there are huge lines. Uh, he took the train to London instead of flying. It seems to be all over the planet. So because of those labor shortages, I think there will be more openness to AI that at least takes over some critical tasks. But, you know, that's one of the issues. AI is good at performing tasks, but most human beings do more than one task in a job. And so even if they take over a task or two um, pretty effectively, that still means that we have other things we, we need to do that AI is not really good at yet. It doesn't look to me like AI is uh, that effective in uh, creative industries. And, and I'll use my own industry as an example. Um, when I'm editing, when I edit this interview, I will, because I have to generate a closed caption for uh, the broadcaster, um, I use an automated service to do that. Uh, it's fast, it's efficient, it's pretty darn good, and it, uh, it saves us a lot of time. But the actual creative work, AI can't do it. Well, that's generally true. It's certainly been true in the past. There, there is a new generation of AI that I think um, uh, threatens um, some creative work, threatens to take it over, at least augment it. Um, uh, some people refer to it as large language models or large image models. Maybe you've heard of some of these tools. There's one from OpenAI called GPT-3 which is really 
quite amazingly good at producing text. Um, there is um, a same company has produced a an image generation model called the the program is called Doll E two um, that is quite good at that. Um, another image generation tool was used recently to win a I think it was um, the category was digitally enhanced photography, but uh, a person submitted an um, entrant to the Colorado State Fair that was created largely by a machine with some uh, augmentation help from a human artist, and it won, much to the to the dismay of more more traditional artists. So we're starting to venture into that more creative space, creating images, creating text, creating um, video that um, heretofore humans were uh, the only the only players in. None of that scares me because I think that if I'm producing something for a client, I need to be uh, efficient, effective. I need to give them a product that makes them go, wow, this was good. And if AI can help me get there quicker, it's a good return on my energy and investment. I'm not saying um, <laughs> that uh, it, it's anything that I should fear. Well, that's, I think that's a, a good attitude that more people should have. And uh, it's um, reflective of how you really use these new, some people call them generative technologies. You need a human up front, a smart and creative one to kind of prompt the system to you know, come up with some output. Um, uh, the artist said, for example, he spent um, hours and hours trying out different prompts um, into the system. And then you have to look at what comes out. And if it's text, you have to edit it. If, it, if you're an artist, you have to kind of Photoshop it and work on the resolution of it and so on. So there's human labor before and after the AI system does its work if you, if you want any sort of decent output at all. So I can see benefits in manufacturing, of course, especially if there are repetitive uh, um, motions that are not uh, forcing the human operator to contribute intellectually to the outcome. Okay, well then let's remove that person from that job and put them into other in endeavors or opportunities that we can really benefit from their insight. One area that I find AI really comes up short is in the service industry, especially if I'm online and I'm talking to some talk bot or something like that. I wind up clicking off and I'm frustrated with the experience and I don't think that it's a, a good customer uh, outcome. Are we finding that in some of your case studies? Yeah, I mean, um, we mostly talked about success stories in this um, book. There, there was one sort of um, semi-failure, I would say, or at least very slow success story involving hamburger flipping with a robot called Flippy, although even even it seems to be catching on a little bit. But in general, yeah, some MIT economists refer to what you're describing as so-so technologies. They aren't really good to satisfy anybody. They don't um, lead to replacement of humans. They don't make customers happy. And you know, I think it actually is possible to create some highly capable you know, chat bots or conversational AI systems. But most organizations don't really want to spend the money. You know, those systems cost a lot and require a lot of, of effort to 
configure and, and implement. Um, they got into the chatbot game because they want to save money, not spend more money. So um, you're right. I think it's been a pretty frustrating experience for, for many consumers. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. But that's a really only a, a minor kind of blip in this. I think that anything that requires huge amounts of uh, computational work uh, to discern trends from data and whatnot can only be, uh, be benefited by the you know, introduction and use of uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it, you know, we, we sometimes define AI as um, when machines do things that only human brains could do previously, but there are a lot of tasks now that human brains could never do that AI can handle quite comfortably. I mean, the, uh, the whole digital advertising industry, for example, is based on AI, and no human being could ever sort of look through all the cookies on your on your computer and do a quick auction to see who'd give me the best price and figure out which ad is most likely to inspire you to buy something. Although, you know, they're still not great at that, but um, uh, no human could ever do that in the 200 milliseconds or so that a, that a machine could do it in. So I like the optimistic tone of your book. And do you think that we will see greater and greater acceptance of artificial intelligence and machine learning within you know, our economy, within our lives, as people start to realize the benefits of it? Um, well, you know, in businesses, there's um, already quite a, a high degree of acceptance, at, at least in large businesses. Um, smaller businesses other than tech startups have been much slower to embrace it, I think in many cases because they don't really understand you know, what the value is and, and what the, what the um, opportunities and challenges are. Consumers, um, as you suggested earlier, have been um, a bit reluctant to embrace different aspects of AI. Many of them say they would not buy autonomous vehicles if they were available. Um, many of them say they don't like the idea of chatbots. Um, many say they don't like the idea of using their data to recommend particular products and services. Um, although <laughs> some make an exception if they can get a discount. <laughs> uh, we're kind of schizophrenic on that, that whole issue of personal data. But in general, you know, consumers um, are at the moment um, uh, not that enthusiastic about the, the AI revolution, it's fair to say. Yeah, in theory, until, as you point out, it comes to, to their benefit and they go, oh, look at that, I can get this for whatever. And I, and I think that that's the, the path forward here. There will be this slow realization that when you have a, uh, a warning system off the side of your car that lets you know another vehicle is there, that intelligent uh, machine is never going to evolve into something that's going to take over driving the car for you on its own. It, it has to be a combined effort that we all embrace. Uh, I think that the future of uh, machine learning is really going to help us live in a better, safer, cleaner, healthier world. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree. I wrote a, a piece uh, a few years ago after um, a 
going to a conference at MIT where the head of the Toyota Research Institute was presenting. And I, I thought Toyota had the right attitude about this. They were trying less for full autonomy in terms of driving and more for how do we make particularly young people and old people, uh, very young and very old people, much safer drivers. And, you know, those tend to be the two um, age extremes where there are the most accidents. And um, I think, as you suggest, I don't think there will be many objections to that. A lot of people would welcome it. And um, you're putting a lot less money at risk in your product development if you're aiming for that level of ambition rather than the, you know, full self driving that, you know, Elon Musk, for example, claims to provide, but has not yet done so after uh, being five years in beta testing and charging customers uh, for this capability ahead of time. I'm very happy to say I did not buy that with my with my Tesla four years ago. Well, I'm uh, kind of enthusiastic about the future. I always have been, and I think that uh, it's human intelligence that brought us to this point, and it's human intelligence that will figure out how do we how we make the most of it. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I, I think it's a fabulous topic, and there'll be some well, mistakes that you. will be made made along the way, but we'll correct those. Yeah. Well, I think.